following audio is from Crossroads Church in West Ossipee, New Hampshire. For more information about Crossroads Church, you can go to www.crossroadsossipee.com. Well, this morning we're returning to Galilee, um, to Jesus and his disciples uh, in a house in Capernaum, maybe even Peter's house, we're not sure. And Jesus has been dealing uh, with the selfish ambition and exclusivity in the hearts of his disciples. Um, And he's not finished with that work yet. Um, So we're going to look at Mark chapter 9, verses 42 through 50. That's page 845 in the Pew Bibles. Mark 9, 42. Um, This is Jesus speaking here and very likely still holding a little child in his arms when he says these words. They had, he had called a little child into their midst back in verse 36. So Mark 9, 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. For it is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for bringing us together this morning around your word, whether we're present in this building or online. Father, we ask that your spirit would speak to us through your word. Help us to interpret these words of the Lord Jesus, to understand what, uh, what he intended, uh, not just what we would imagine, um, but what you actually meant. Um, so guide us in that work. Give us wisdom to understand. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts that are soft to receive your instruction and put it to work in our lives. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm sure you are, you've all been dying, uh, waiting for these verses in Mark, right? How are we going to deal with this? Cutting off hands and feet and gouging out eyes and throwing people into the lake with a rock tied around their neck? Well, not. Let's close in prayer. <laughs> this is a lot of work here. <laughs> well... That's why I made extra coffee this morning. So there's a lot going on here. There's a lot going on in these few verses. And though it may seem a little broad in its scope and maybe even a little scattered in its subject, Jesus is really only dealing with one main idea. Um, All those sermon points really boil down to one. So I'm not the only one who likes one-point sermons. Who needs three points in a poem? Just get to one. So let's look at each one of these ideas and see how they all really do work together. 
So the first, the first is in verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Now, ministry to children is so important. But Jesus isn't just talking to the children's ministers here. He is not at a youth pastor's convention. Uh, he, is, he is not also... Uh, not just talking about children here either, but anyone who is immature in their faith, a child in faith, as it were. And Jesus said that if anyone who causes one of these little ones to stumble, that's a more accurate word, to falter in their faith, it would be better if a great millstone were tied around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Now, you know how much I like to... um, look at the original um, words and try to get at the greater meaning that is lost in the English translation. Well, there's a wonderful word here, translated great. And do you know what it means? It's very obvious. It means donkey. No joke. The original Greek word here is donkey, not great. Now, that's confusing, isn't it? Well, only if you don't know how millstones work. The original Greek, this is a donkey millstone, a donkey millstone, right? And this is just opposed to a smaller millstone closer to the size of a rolling pin that uh, a handheld millstone used by the women in the first century. This is more like the millstones that, that dot the countryside of New England. You see a great big granite wheel leaned up on a, uh, the curb or on a well or whatever. That's a a large stone wheel that was pulled on a wooden axle around and round in a circle, and it was pulled by a donkey, right? So that would have made sense to the first century uh, believers. They would have understood exactly what it meant, a donkey millstone, which, um, in other words, you could also say a big Millstone. You might even use the word great. Okay? So that's how we got there. A great millstone. Great big rock. Well, that was important, right? Don't you feel closer to the Lord now? You feel his spirit stirring in your hearts? I love that kind of thing. So all that to say that this offense of causing a little one to stumble is extremely significant. Right? Protecting the faith of the immature, whether it's a child or otherwise, is vitally important. We must do our best to help them grow, not make them stumble, to help them mature, not stunt their growth, so as to falsely elevate ourselves. Now, I have the advanced version of Christianity, and you just have the kid version right now, but you'll get there someday, right? Just send me $49.95. Yeah. Or something like that. That's not to say that the protection of children is also not vitally important. In this world, just in the last week, um, all kinds, uh, over 30 children were found um, captured uh, and enslaved in Georgia. Um, And it is rampant in our society. And believe me, the Lord will deal with those people. He has much greater judgment. than us.
So not stunting the growth of immature believers as to falsely elevate ourselves is truly what Jesus was getting at, not to discount um, the actual protection of children. But what Jesus has been dealing with in the hearts of the disciples is that elevation of themselves over others. The desire to be first or to be best, to be exclusive, to elevate themselves above everyone else. Not just them as a group either, not just we're the original 12, but even within the group. Themselves as individuals, they've been trying to puff themselves up. And the consequences for their behavior was dire. Nobody could escape a millstone hung around their neck. There's no hope to be able to swim um, when you're tossed in the sea like that. As Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 5.14, instead of treading on the immature to elevate themselves, they ought to, as Paul wrote, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. This is about putting others before yourself. This is what Jesus is instructing them. Don't elevate yourself and use other people as stepping stones. And there's countless ways uh, in which leaders in a church have been guilty of causing little ones to stumble and sin. The history of the church is riddled with atrocities. But something seemingly innocent is saying, do as I say, not as I do, is in the same category. It's destructive to the faith of children. It's okay for me to do, but not for you. The point that Jesus is driving at is that we all, uh, we must all as disciples elevate the needs of others before our own. To seek the help, uh, to seek to help the faith of those who are weak or immature in their walk with Christ, regardless of their age. If our teaching, our actions cause one such as these to sin or to stumble, if we are the cause of their sin, we are to be dealt with harshly because it's that serious. We deserve the millstone and a ride to the lake. It's the treatment of the cause of that sin, the treatment of the cause of sin that Jesus is after here. If it's the disciples causing the little one to sin, or even if it's your own hand or eye or foot causing you to sin. He says in verse 43, and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than two hands go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, how close have you been paying attention? What is wrong with those verses? Look at your Bible again. What's missing? There's two verses missing. Verse 44 and verse 46 where do they go? Well, they are identical to verse 48. So the translators just skipped the repetition. 
it says, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. That's what verse 44 says, verse 46 and verse 48. I don't know why they took them out. It's not really saving a lot of space, but I say the, say the same thing over and over. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So that's, you can impress your friends with that because that's really all that's for. What is Jesus really after here? That's what's important. First of all, you can breathe a sigh of relief. This is not a treatise on the doctrine of hell or eternal conscious torment for those who die without faith in Christ. That was not Jesus' point here. Though many doctrines have been based on these verses, that's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about self-denial and humility and not being the cause of sin. But because it's here, we still have to deal with it. So to deal with the obvious first, there is a word translated into English, hell. Okay? That might make you think that that's what Jesus was talking about. <laughs> Maybe. Well, hell is an English word, but the Greek word is Gehenna, which means the Valley of Hinnom, uh, which is an actual place. The Valley of Hinnom is an actual place. It's a sort of ravine on the southern end of the city of Jerusalem. And it's a place that was famous for pagan kings of Israel sacrificing their own children and burning them to the false god Moloch was an act of pagan worship in the city of Jerusalem. But under the good king of Israel, Josiah, uh, he might have been king of Judah, I don't remember, the good king, Josiah, anyway, it was turned into a garbage dump, which is how, uh, how people dealt with uh, impurity in that way, pagan worship. Uh, when the Romans... Um, took over Jerusalem, they turned um, what, uh, where the church of the Holy Sepulchre is, right? That's where uh, the people believe that that's where the tomb of Jesus was and where Calvary actually was. Well, the pagan Roman empires turned it into a garbage dump to hide it, to bury it under their filth, right? That's how they dealt with it. They couldn't just hire a bulldozer. They, they didn't have those. So they make it into a a garbage dump. So that's exactly what uh, Jesus is referring to. Um, the King Josiah turned it into a garbage dump where fires burn continuously to consume regular deposits of maggot-ridden trash. Okay? It's great. I've been to this place. It is not, it is not a nice place. Even in 19... 97, there were still dead carcasses of animals in this hole um, just outside, just outside of the city. Why do we need to know that? Why is that important? Because what Jesus said cannot mean what he didn't mean. It can never mean what it never meant. So when Jesus speaks of this place, the Valley of Hinnom, where the worm doesn't die and the fire is not quenched, they knew what he was talking about. Was he talking about some spiritual place of destruction and punishment? No. He's talking about Jerusalem's garbage dump. It's better for you to enter life with one hand instead of being thrown in the dump. 
It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to be thrown into this maggoty, burning trash heap. Okay? When he, when he says the Valley of Hinnom, they could picture it. Maybe they could even remember the smell. It's repulsive. And the imagery of entering life with one hand, one eye, or one foot, rather than being tossed into that maggoty, burning garbage dump, would be especially strong if you'd ever been there and never seen it. And who is he speaking to? He's speaking to Jewish people who go to Jerusalem every year on the Day of Atonement. These people knew what Jesus was talking about. He's not talking about an ethereal, spiritual future punishment. He's talking about Jerusalem's garbage dump. You remember? Remember where all that fire is burning and that black smoke and all those maggots? Do you want to go there with your two hands when your hand is causing you to sin? No, right? That's the point he is trying to make. Rather than stretch the imagery to say that when Jesus said hand, he was implying, you know, what that means is your actions. And when he says I, he was implying your, your thought life and your, and your foot, whatever. Make up whatever you want. I don't think he was trying to spiritualize anything. I think we can simply conclude that if something causes us to sin or tempts us beyond what we can bear, we're better off without it. This is not a complicated single-point sermon in truth. Sin is bad. Avoid it. <laughs> okay? That doesn't make it easy, but it makes it important. Jesus is saying we must cast off the delectable as detestable. What, what This thing that you like that causes you to sin, you are better off without it. There's lots of ways that we can interpret that, or apply that, not interpret, but apply that to our own lives. Okay? Sin is a serious issue. Matthew Henry wrote, We must put ourselves to pain that we may not bring ourselves to ruin. Self must be denied that it may not be destroyed. Saying no to sin is possible. It's hard, but it is possible and it is important. And that's really the point of, the ho- of, of, of all of this. Sin doesn't come from our hand or from our eye or from our foot. Sin comes from our heart. And say, to, say no to our own heart requires discipline and requires help. Jesus said back in Mark 7:21, "For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. And when we put our trust in Jesus, he deals with the punishment for our sin. He deals with the consequences for, of our sinful nature and our sinful choices. They were placed on him on the cross. But that doesn't remove the temptation to sin from us. 
It does not remove the natural consequences for our sinful choices either. We must continuously say no to our own pride, which gives birth to all of those own, those other sins anyway. Pride is the sin that's pregnant with all the others. We put ourselves before anything else. That's when we sin. You might think that it's the actual action, the actual lie, right? The actual theft, the actual murder, but it's not. You elevate yourself before you do that. Before you lie, you put yourself above whatever circumstances you're trying to avoid. I don't want to deal with the consequences. I don't want people to think this or do that. I don't want to get in trouble. That's self on top of everything else. Sin is a serious issue. And as verse 49 says, Everyone will be salted with fire. Isn't that your life verse, right? Put that on your inspirational coffee cup. Everyone will be salted with fire. Here's good news. We get to choose what kind of fire. We are constantly faced with the choice of humility or pride. Godly self-renunciation or the fire of judgment. The purifying fire of the Holy Spirit or the fire of condemnation and destruction? The fire of God's altar or the fire of Gehenna? But if uh, salt is good, but if it has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Salt is good. This must have been Nana's favorite life verse because she loves salt on everything. Salt is good, especially on corn on the cob. But how can salt lose its saltiness? That doesn't seem right. How does calcium chloride become not calcium chloride? Well, it can't. So, in first century Palestine, salt came from deposits near the Dead Sea. A big lake with no outlets. Water goes in and doesn't come out. And it's very, very salty. So much so that swimming in it, it's really strange as the human body is much more buoyant in water that's so dense with salt. It, it even feels weird on your skin. Not exactly syrup, but not exactly water. It's very strange. You float really high in the water. Anyway, that salt that they would collect is not like the table salt that we use today. It's not refined and purified like what we use. It's nowhere near as pure. And when the calcium chloride leached away due to the humidity of the climate, you are left with what amounts to basically lime, just a useless powder, tasteless, not good for anything. And Matthew says, it's not worth anything but to be cast out and trampled on, which I don't know what lime actually does. I should have researched that. It's not good for paths. It's good for your grass, right? Yeah, good. I'm looking at him. I should be looking at you. Yeah, sorry. Right? But as far as food goes, it's pretty much useless. So that's interesting, right? More trivia. But what does Jesus really mean? Think about the context. Based on this context, 
The flavor and preservative qualities of salts is spiritual discipline, the result of which is peace, or at least behaving peacefully, putting others before yourself. And the lack of this saltiness was the lack of self-resignation, the lack of the Spirit's discipline, and the lack of consecration to God. It's pride, not humility. It's choosing sin versus choosing to cut it off or tear it out. And having salt in ourselves in this way is choosing to retain those precious qualities of humility and discipline that will make us a blessing to one another, a blessing to those around us. Now, because we know the Gospel of Mark is really Peter's recounting of the events um, of Jesus, the, the life and, and the work of Jesus. Later, you can read in 1 Peter chapter 5, he echoes this same teaching. 1 Peter 5, 6 through 11. And I can't help but think that he had Jesus' words in mind when he says this. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxiety, anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, your word to us. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to put it to work. That by the power of your Holy Spirit that lives in us, we would say no to sin. That we would cast off those things that tempt us beyond what we can bear. Those things that plague us and seem to chase us around. Help us, Lord, to be rid of those things. Even if it means something drastic. Even if it means cutting off our internet or getting rid of our smartphone. Or not going to certain places or hanging out with certain people. Whatever it is, Lord, we pray that you would give us the strength to say no because it's better for us to enter life with one hand or one eye or one foot than to be thrown in the garbage. We thank you that your grace is greater than all our sin. That no matter how we struggle with these things, your grace is still enough. Our sin is still forgiven. That your sacrifice on the cross in our place was enough. And the debt has been paid. We thank you for that great gift. We pray, Lord, that our lives would be lives of humility and discipline. That we might bring you glory and be a blessing to our neighbors. And we need your help to do it. We'll love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.
you'd like to participate in the mission of Crossroads Church through financial support, checks can be mailed to Crossroads Church, Post Office Box 576, West Ossipee, New Hampshire, 03890.